This week on Forward, we speak with Rob Henderson about luxury beliefs, young men, and the ins and outs of human nature. This week on Forward. Welcome back to Ford. My name is Jules Turpak and I'll be hosting today. I've been on about four or five episodes so far, but if you haven't tuned into those, I'll give a recap of who I am one last time. I'm a tech and digital culture commentator, predominantly on TikTok, and I find things like UBI and independent politics to be essential conversations for our future. I'm super excited about today's guest. Today's guest is one of my favorite Twitter follows, and his bio is straight to the point, interested in human nature. So we're going to explore many facets of that today. Rob Henderson is a PhD student and Gates Cambridge scholar at the University of Cambridge. He received a Bachelor's of Science degree in psychology from Yale University and is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Quillette, among many other outlets. Rob's main area of research is in moral psychology, and you may have even seen him on the Jordan Peterson podcast. Thanks for being here, Rob. Thanks, Jules. Great to be here. So... That's a super impressive bio, but what I find even more impressive and surprising is your background and your journey up until this point. It's definitely not that of a typical Yale college students, and I would love for people to hear it through your words. Yeah, sure. So so like you mentioned, I'm a PhD student here in Cambridge in my uh, fourth and final year. And before this, I, I studied uh, psychology at Yale as an undergrad and worked as a research assistant in a psych lab um, there at the university. But uh, before I entered these uh, universities, my life was a lot different. Um, so backing way up, I was born in Los Angeles uh, and you know, born into poverty. I, I never knew who my father was. My mother uh, became addicted to drugs and she was unable to care for me. And so she, yeah, I mean, I, I was basically taken from her and uh, put into the foster care system in Los Angeles and grew up in homes around the city, uh, you know, throughout the 90s, and was later adopted uh, by this family, this kind of working class family into this dusty blue collar town in Northern California called Red Bluff. Um, very poor town. Uh, at, the, at that time in the late 90s, it was the median household income was $27,000 a year. Uh, you know, just um, kind of run down, very high crime, a lot of uh, poverty. And that was where I spent the sort of second half of my childhood after the homes in L.A. Um, Even then, you know, after this adoption, there was still a lot of drama and uh, disorder. My adoptive parents divorced. My adoptive father stopped speaking to me after this divorce because he was angry with my mother for leaving him. And so for me, after living in all those homes, never knowing my father and then my adoptive father, uh, severing ties with me. It was really hard for me as a, as a little kid emotionally. And so that was a main reason why my grades and my performance in school suffered. I barely graduated high school. I got you know, I think we had a 2.2 GPA when I graduated. Um, and there were you know, periods where I was in danger of failing out. And so, yeah, right after high school, when I was 17, I enlisted, uh, joined the Air Force. And from there, kind of you know, managed to redirect my life after some false starts and, you know, ended up going to Yale on the GI Bill. So that is like the very, uh, very short version, the sort of abbreviated version of, of um, you know, sort of where I was and, and, and how I got here. 
And what do you think were the pivotal points in making and having you make those changes? Was there a certain role model that you had that really changed things for you or like what different aspects of your life made that pivot? I mean, there were a few different things. It's always hard to isolate um, the sort of specific key factors, but I'm, I'm writing a memoir right now. And of course, like as I'm working on it, I am, I am sort of forced to identify those key moments. And, and there are a couple of ideas that, that come to mind. One was, you know, I, I did have this, this period of stability in my uh, adolescence. So my adoptive mother, after her divorce from my adoptive father, she entered a relationship with a woman and together her and her partner raised me for a few years from when I was about nine, nine to 14. So right before I started high school. And I recall this period uh, as being relatively stable. I was still getting into trouble, still getting into fights and, and, you know, doing drugs and still doing a lot of reckless things, but it, it didn't get too out of hand in part, I think, because I did have this solid home base and, and these caretakers that I could rely on and who were there for me. Um, and part of the reason why I enlisted, uh, there were a couple of different experiences I had. So one, I had a male history teacher who himself was a veteran of the Air Force, and he sort of encouraged me to enlist. Um, he, you know, I think he spotted some potential in me that I was maybe unwilling to see for myself. He saw that I was kind of a curious kid who was just kind of mired in uh, chaos at home and was, you know, spending a lot of time with friends who maybe didn't have my best interests in mind. Yep. So he thought maybe if I enlisted, that would, that would sort of pull me out of that. And so those are just a, a couple of the, the I think, uh, sort of what um, uh, protective factors in, in my early life that, that helped me. And in comparison to how you grew up, what was the culture shock of Yale like when you landed there? It, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, of course, like, you know, these elite schools have a reputation for being, uh, you know, full, you know, rich themselves, full of rich students and, yep. you know, that kind of thing, you know, they're in the movies and whatever. So I had like that, I guess, sort of stereotype, but, um, you know, that didn't really prepare me for what, what I experienced my, you know, so let's see, I, I was honorably discharged from the military in uh, August, started class in September, like literally a week later, you know, I, I was stationed in Germany. So I like moved from Germany to New Haven to start classes. I had been a poor student in high school. So it was a little bit difficult to sort of uh, transition into taking academics so seriously, especially in this sort of high stress competitive atmosphere at a school like that. Um, but, you know, I managed. And then, um, you know, I, I remember my, my first semester there, few weeks in, I tried to get into this class called uh, The Concept of the Problem Child, taught by a a renowned child uh, development expert. And I was interested in this class for obvious reasons, uh, given my own history. And I didn't get in, which made sense to me. And I was a first year student. And this class was mainly geared towards uh, fourth year students who maybe had a little bit more experience and sort of more of a background, I guess, in psychology. I emailed the professor and asked, you know, or I said, you know, thank you for offering this course and asked some questions about it. She encouraged me to apply the next time she offered it. Um, And I was very encouraged by this because I didn't even expect her to write me back. But I never got to take this course because the course was taught by Erica Christakis. And a lot of people will know that Erica Christakis uh, resigned from her teaching position at Yale because there was a student uprising at the university uh, demanding for her and her husband to be fired uh, because she essentially defended freedom of expression in an email um, mm-hmm. in response to the administration. 
and sort of stood up for, you know, whatever, the right to sort of express yourself and to not get um, diversity administration and bureaucracy involved in students' lives. And the stu many students, not all of them, but many uh, interpreted her remarks as, you know, at least they claimed to have interpreted them as uh, defending inter uh, what, cultural appropriation and uh, sort of uh, defending bigotry and prejudice and all of this stuff. And you're this was totally what bewildering are these to me. Terms? <laughs> yeah, you're well, that was one thing was uh, I had no idea what cultural appropriation was. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of, yeah. So I, I read that email a few times, didn't get it. And understand this i mean it was it was you know i think a lot of people sort of don't understand just how big this was at that university it was covered in the national news and everything in the media but experiencing it firsthand it was it was all encompassing it was everywhere um it sort of took over all of the conversations of the university for for a few weeks um and so that was a, a massive culture shock for me to see um you know i i had thought of this place as this you know university that attracted thoughtful interesting people who were willing to discuss ideas and uh and, and instead i i saw them you know asking professors to be fired for defending that idea mm -hmm. so that was really um you know very much at odds with with my uh belief about what a university was um so so yeah that was my sort of introduction to uh higher education in america This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Something I found super interesting about one of your New York Times um, opinion pieces called Everything I Know About Elite America, I Learned from Fresh Prince and West Wing. I thought that was fascinating in the way that it was kind of like these different levels, each show that you watched, you realized, okay, this, this is, seems like a, a social class or above me. And then like you moved on to another show and you're like, okay, this is even above that like social class. And it was kind of like you learned through that, but there's nothing like experiencing, experiencing it in real time. I really enjoyed working on that. Mm -hmm. um, it was basically my, a, a discussion of my experience with television and pop culture and then yeah. how that sort of informed my views about class in America. And so I wrote in that piece, you know, initially, I thought that class was mostly um, centered on money. And in part, that was because that was 
that that was how class was discussed where I grew up. Um, you know, I think I, I think you know. So I had I have two pieces, two versions of that piece. There's like this sort of long version, unedited version that I have on my Substack, and then the shorter one. But in one of those, anyway, I, I write about how I, I my first job at in, in high school. I was 15. I, I was a dishwasher at this Italian restaurant, and these guys that I worked with, you know, all of the conversations were about money. You know, like I was making minimum wage washing dishes. The guys in in the sort of the the cooking station, the pizza station, probably weren't making that much more than me. And so it was like all about you know buying nice cars and you know some of these guys played the lottery and it was just all, all of this discussion of like how to get more money how broke we were all this kind of stuff and so that was what i thought and, and my family too often struggled financially but then i would watch these shows i would watch um well fresh prince mm-hmm. and uh and another one later on in high school i watched the oc and i remember being very confused by this because these characters like you know for, so carlton and will smith in fresh prince there's like a, a a big chunk of i think season 3 where they're like obsessing over college applications and it's not just these shows like if you watch any sort of teen kind of drama or whatever like there's always going to be like an arc about oh getting into college a college applications all this stuff and but 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 carlton was rich right like Aunt Viv and uh, Uncle Phil, like his family, the Banks family was rich. The name is Banks, you know, like sort of. And so, so, so they're rich. And, and yet it was critical to Carlton to go to college. The question was whether he would go to Princeton or not, just like Uncle Phil had, just like his father. And I was watching this like, why does he care if he goes to college? Like, he's already rich. He makes jokes about his inheritance <laughs> and they have a butler, Jeffrey, like they have nice cars. Like Will Smith is like always referencing how he wants to like drive Uncle Phil's Jag and all this. And I'm like, why would you want to go to college? Like you're already rich. Who cares? And, yeah, uh, and, and he was like, this. exactly. And, and so this was like an inkling to sort of planted this idea in my mind that like, okay, so something's going on here where even if you have money, you still don't really feel sort of what, um, like you're, you're fulfilled mm-hmm. or that whatever you're rising up in society, unless you have an education too. And so, you know, then later I, I wrote in that piece about, um, like, like, uh, when I discovered that it wasn't just money, it wasn't just education. Uh, there seems to be like the sort of unspoken vocabulary and taste and habits also uh, that are key ingredients to class. And I talk about Mad Men and, you know, Don Draper, the protagonist of that show, uh, you know, even though he sort of looks the part and he's rich and he works in this, you know, high, high flying advertising agency, he's always making these sort of subtle errors and faux pas that, um, you know, his coworkers and colleagues and his boss and his wife who all come from, you know, they're actually like sort of this waspy, you know, uh, wealthy, wealthy members of like New York society or whatever. And they can sort of spot that Don is maybe not who he says he is or something's off about him. And, um, and so that, that too sort of helped me to understand, okay, so there's something else going on here. And then later I would read books about class. And then by the time I got to Yale, it was just like uh, uh, pervasive, uh, realizing, uh, okay, so, you know, you can have money, you can have the education, but then there's this language that you have to decode as well if you really want to be accepted. And, and people can sort of spot this um, if, if they're sort of ensconced in that world, if they're immersed in it. And so, yeah, that was sort of the purpose of that, that New York Times piece. Yeah, so then this all snowballed into something that you're super well known for is this concept of luxury beliefs. And you define it as ideas and opinions that confer status um, on the rich at very little cost while taking a toll on the lower class. And it kind of speaks to we feel pressured to within the upper class, feeling pressure to build and maintain social status and fear losing it. So how what was the initial point where you're like this is what it is because you know you're talking these hints of it and then when did you exactly just declare like this is a a very niche concept within this upper class called luxury beliefs Uh, it's funny so so the idea was sort of uh you know sort of swirling in the back of my mind 
you know, all throughout my experiences at Yale as an undergrad, you know, I, I got there, I was 24 years old when I started. Um, so I was a little bit older and, you know, I, I guess just maybe I had a little bit more of a distance perspective. I wasn't caught up in like the whole trying to like chase a finance or consulting job and going to internships and everything. Like I, I'd already pretty much set my mind to um, applying for a PhD program in psychology. So I knew kind of what I wanted to do. And I was always interested in human behavior. Um, while I was there, I would read, um, you know, of course, I'd read like these modern uh, social psychology studies and evolutionary psychology studies about how, you know, status is a fundamental motive of human beings yeah. and, you know, how we're constantly seeking esteem and recognition in the eyes of others. And of course, like, you know, I made the obvious connection to social media, but it's, it's sort of always been present in one form or another. I would read um, like old school sociology, Thorsten Veblen, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, these kind of uh, you know, classic um uh, social critics and observers who, you know, they, they would say, you know, in the early 20th century, for example, people would demonstrate their class with their material goods, with, um, you know, jewelry or uh, delicate and restrictive clothing, how they present themselves in public. A uh, hundred years ago, if you walked around Manhattan, uh, you would instantly be able to tell just through visual appearance alone through material goods, who was rich and who was poor just by how they were dressed. Whereas today that may not necessarily be true. And so I, uh, my claim is that people have sort of the upper class specifically have detached status from luxury goods and reattached it to luxury beliefs, um, which are sort of these sophisticated, novel, uh, counterintuitive ideas, you know, maybe pseudo sophisticated is a better term that that um, essentially go against whatever the sort of typical conventional opinion is in society. So if a typical sort of working class or middle class person believes X, then a, a, a sort of simple way to distinguish yourself is to say why, uh, you know, it's something different. And then the way you communicate that counterintuitive luxury belief uh, is also sort of indicative of your class. You can't just say the belief, you have to express it in, in, in the right way. And the way that you learn how to do that is through um, you know, going to an expensive university, uh, sort of reading the right magazines, consuming the right podcasts, immersing yourself in the world of, of, of luxury belief. And, and so this is sort of today how, how status is often demonstrated um, is through luxury belief. So the term itself, I mean, I came up with this term, and, you know, it's so funny, like academics and thinkers, everyone like, you know, they spend, you know, a lot of time trying to come up with something. And the things that they really want to catch on often don't. And then the thing you just never can predict other things, they just take off without you even planning on it. Yeah, I was standing in line at a coffee shop. Uh, and I, you know, this idea, like I said, had been percolating in my mind for a while. And I just like wrote this thread about luxury beliefs. And the, the term just jumped in my mind while I'm standing in line, like, oh, luxury beliefs. Yeah, luxury goods, luxury beliefs, obviously. And I wrote like this sort of seven part thread uh, while I'm waiting in line. And this thing sort of went viral. And then I got some attention. And then I started writing, you know, offers to write these articles and so on. And, um, and so the idea, I think everyone sort of understood it, they um, knew what it was, it was kind of in the air. And then I just gave it this, this label as a, as a way to sort of help people to make sense of it. Going back to the point of how you grew up, you know, you got out of a rare situation that a lot of people in a broken, quote unquote, broken family situation, have a very tough time getting out of and you had these different pivotal points. There's a conversation around young men right now that Yang and Zach on this podcast like to talk about often. And this is something that, you know, you lived deeply and how this concept right now, there's a lot of comparison of, you know, the the gender gap in different situations where, yes, men have traditionally, you know, been quote unquote better in situations, but now women are rising up and that you don't put a lot of blame on 
those specific things. You talk about more the relationships and dynamics of families and how even relationships are a luxury belief conversation within the upper class. So there's a finding um, from the early 1960s essentially showing that family formation and stability was roughly the same across social classes. Uh, So in 1960, 95% of children were raised by both of their birth parents regardless of social class, whether you were really poor or really rich. You know, overwhelmingly, the odds are that the people, you know, you, you were raised by both of your birth parents. And then if you fast forward to 2000, by, by 2005, uh, it had dropped slightly for the upper class. It had dropped, it was 95%, it had dropped to 85%. So a slight dip, but still the vast majority of upper middle class and upper class people are, are um, raised in intact families. And for the working class and the poor, it had plummeted from 95% to 30% in 2005. So it's actually like, it's it's rare. It's it, you're, you're an anomaly now if you're working class or poor person and you were raised by both of your birth parents in a stable intact family um and uh, you know when i've written about this i've I've discussed my own uh personal experiences so of course like my own uh turbulent childhood and youth and then my my five closest friends in high school you know these five guys none of them were raised by both of their birth parents you know i I contrast this with uh this experience i had in, in undergrad at yale uh the professor administered an anonymous uh survey to the class there were 20 something students in this seminar she asked us to respond to this question. Um, were you raised by both of your birth parents? Yes or no. Uh, and out of 20 something students, it was just me and one other student who said, no, uh, you know, I can see like, Oh, there's only two people. Well, I'm one of them. And then there's someone else in this room who wasn't, yeah. and that just floored me. They're like, I was like the first time I saw that it was, cause remember I, I talked about this before, that, uh, Yale students tend to be rich, but I had no idea that, you know, not only was their experience with money different, but also family structure was like night and day from what I had experienced growing up. So my five closest friends in, in high school, you know, one of them was raised by his grandmother, another one raised by a single mom, another raised by a single dad, the other one kind of bounced around different homes. And it was just, um, that was the sort of typical experience. Um, and so, so, okay. So family formation is important. And the reason for this is because if you look at the contributors to sort of risky and harmful behavior, which is disproportionately committed by men, especially young men. There are social scientists who describe this as a young male syndrome. Uh, You know, who in society is most likely to commit crimes, especially violent crimes, get involved in drugs and car accidents and homicide and everything. It's, it's, uh, you know, it peaks around age 19 for young men. but what are the contributors of this? A lot of people will point to socioeconomic status, but if you look at the research, um, developmental and evolutionary psychologists make a distinction between childhood uh, harshness and childhood instability. Uh, harshness is essentially poverty or low socioeconomic status and instability is, um, you know, it includes number of relocations in childhood, whether you were raised by both of your birth parents, whether the father was present in the home, whether you lived in foster care, like basically just how disorderly was your life as a kid. Childhood instability is like like far and away a, a much stronger predictor of a child's um, uh, outcomes as an adult. Uh, you know, it's significantly associated with um, your likelihood of committing crimes, of teen pregnancy, of drug addiction. Um, it's also a strong predictor of what psychologists call the dark triad personality traits, uh, which are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, which are associated with like cynicism, hostility, uh, disregard for other people. Um, And in contrast, uh, childhood socioeconomic status is unrelated to uh, harmful or risky behaviors in adulthood or uh, the dark triad traits. So often the sort of link that we make between poverty and and all of these negative outcomes, it's actually instability. That's that's what's accounting for it. Because when researchers look at, for example, rich families that are unstable, 
um, the number one predictor is childhood instability, because even in rich families, there are sort of these cases where, you know, there's divorce and alcoholism and addiction in rich families too, just not to the same degree. But kids who experience those situations are also more likely to um, sort of commit uh, harmful and, and risky behaviors themselves. So, um, and of course, like most of this is isolated among young men, uh, you know, they sort of commit more externalizing uh, behaviors, inflicting pain on the world. Uh, and this is why we notice it more. And, and girls experience a lot of uh, uh, detrimental effects too, but uh, they, they tend to express it in what psychologists call like internalizing behavior, sort of turning it around on themselves and, and becoming maybe depressed or anxious or something like that, whereas boys sort of uh, turn it outward. So, um, and so, yeah, this is, this is sort of why I think that uh, family and childhood instability is often overlooked in discussions of like, what's going on with young men? Why are they dropping out of college? Why are they dropping out of the workforce and so on? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So in one of your articles, too, you spoke to one of your classmates who she grew up with monogamous parents and, you know, a two parent household, but she seemed to almost romanticize polygamy, even though, did you mention in the article that she later went on into a monogamous relationship? Was that the situation? Uh, so, so she was a, a former classmate of mine at Yale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now she works for a tech company doing very well. She's applying for law schools last night. But, but anyway, so, so she, um, yeah, she was basically saying that like, oh, monogamy is outdated. Marriage is this sort of what, like we need to evolve beyond this patriarchal institution and so on. But then I asked her, well, first I asked her like how she was, was raised and unsurprisingly she was raised by her mom and her dad in a sort of uh, quiet suburb with you know whatever like yeah. intact family and then I asked her what she planned to do herself and she said that she yeah will eventually probably settle down and you know get married and have kids and kind of do the same thing that her parents did and so there was this disconnect between this idea that she was promoting and espousing belief in and what she planned to do for her own life. And I, and I, I pointed this out, you know, I did say like, well, then why are you saying monogamy is outdated if you're going to 
you know, and engage in it yourself yeah. and partake in it. And she said, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying like, like for me, like that's, I guess that's what I want, but it doesn't have to be for everyone. Like, why do we have to impose this outdated thing on everyone, you know, if they don't want it or if they, whatever. And, and so there was uh, yeah, to me, there was like this element of duplicity between what she planned to do and, and, and what clearly works. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the vast majority majority of students at these top universities are raised in stable intact families uh, but then if you ask them you know the 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 sort of fashionable belief is that all families are the same or you shouldn't judge or you know any family is just as good as any other and that kind of thing and and so this this is a luxury belief because you know the the people who wield the most sort of social and political and economic influence in society are overlooking like basically like one of the most important contributors to um, social mobility, to um, sort of stability uh, for, you know, mitigating all kinds of harmful, harmful effects for, for young children. You've also spoken to, it was more so referencing an article that spoke about how within the upper class, there hasn't been too much variation in this over the past few decades, while um, within like the middle and lower class there has in terms of more like divorce, higher divorce rates, uh, people growing up not within two-parent homes. So why is that sticking amongst certain classes, but why is it not sticking in the upper class? Uh, that, that sort of non-permissive, non-judgmental attitude has led to, to this kind of situation where the upper classes are still following these sort of old school codes of family formation because that's what they know and that's what they actually, you know, if you ask them, like, what's the best situation for, for their kids, they'll say, like, oh, I think my kids should be raised by two parents. And this is part of the reason why uh, single parenthood is so low. Fatherlessness rates are very low among the upper class, among the educated class. Um, and so they're aware of this, but they won't necessarily uh, espouse this or, or promote this, this, this view. So yeah, basically, uh, there, there are kind of uh, cultural factors at play here for why um, less educated and lower income people are, are having kids out of wedlock. So of course, men are traditionally like initiate relationships in terms of setting the tone. They're the ones asking out on dates traditionally, etc. So you wrote a Substack article called No One Expects Young Men to Do Anything and They're Responding by Doing Nothing. And you also make the argument that young men who grew up in a similar situation to you growing up or just awake within the realm, how we should actually expect more of them. What kind of messaging can get through to young men today that are in these hardships and, you know, helping them Mm. move forward? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a big part of it too. I mean, a big part of what's going on with family instability is um, fatherlessness. So, you know, there's, there's a great book. I, I reference it in that Substack piece called Promises to Keep by, um, well, I think the first author is uh, Maria Kefalis. He's like a Princeton sociologist was the, the lead author on that. And they basically say that like a huge reason for instability is young men in these poor neighborhoods are like not, uh, not very responsible. They interviewed these women and they'll talk about how these guys will, you know, like if they do hold a job, it's only for a few months and then they'll use the money to buy you know, things that aren't aren't useful for the kids or for the family, and they're sort of uh, self-centered and preoccupied with their own needs and not necessarily with those of their family and so on. But, you know, broadly speaking, you know, just general, like guys in general, like, feel, I think, aimless and adrift. And this is, I mean, like, you know, I referenced the young male syndrome earlier, like guys are the ones who sort of need the most, I think, external pressure and guidance in order to, uh, you know, I mean, at the very least, not commit any harm, but, uh, you know, ideally to sort of flourish and do well in their lives. And, you know, especially because like, 
women are kind of known to be more self-starters. You see that within like the college application process, young men are typically the worst with sending in their transcripts and everything like that. Like they need what you're saying, a pressure on them. Yeah. 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 That's right. That sort of orderliness, that kind of, um, yeah, like like procrastination. I mean, like everyone procrastinates to some degree, but I mean, I think like it's most pronounced among among young guys. And mm-hmm. so, as far as messaging, I mean, it's a tough question. Like for me, obviously, World War II, the military, and like the military is like basically the most, like that's the strongest kind of situation you can be in in terms of external pressure. And and even then, there were periods where you know I, I could have made uh, some serious mistakes and maybe just got lucky. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so like, I mean, obviously we can't have that environment for everyone, but I think like having a little bit of that would be good. Um, you know, the, there have been some different ideas tossed around. I'm not sure how much stock to put into any of them. And it's something that I've been thinking about more about like maybe having more male teachers or getting more young men involved in sports or, um, you know, having like, like neighborhood role models, this kind of thing, you know, guys who, who, uh, you know, older, older male mentors, to at least set a good example. And I think those are all good ideas mm-hmm. um, and they certainly couldn't hurt. Um, but I, th- this, is, uh, this is still something that I've, I've been thinking about. I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem that, that I think we're just now even, even um, acknowledging publicly. You know, there was that big Wall Street Journal article I think that came out last year. And that w- I was surprised to see that like finally, you know, like a mainstream media, legacy media outlet is openly discussing that like, yeah, uh, I think within the next five years or something, uh, for every, uh, what is it? Every two men that graduate college is going to be three or, or might've been like two to one, some, some insane number like that, yes. where the vast majority of, of, of graduates will be, will be women. And, you know, I'm not saying that every male should go to college, but that those numbers are indicative of something that's happening here where guys, uh, are just sort of feeling aimless and, and not really feeling like, uh, they can contribute. A lot of the times I think the role of teachers today can be great curators. Um, you know, like there's just so much on the internet for these kids to consume and they often flock to the Mr. Beast or like the Logan Pauls of the world. These like huge YouTubers that again, it's just like, they're not, you know, it's entertaining, but they're not necessarily like great role models because their situation is like super outlier like in terms of their situation. I, I agree. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're fun and they're entertaining and whatever. But as far as like setting down some guidelines or uh, mentorship or anything like that. I mean, I, I think this is part of why Jordan Peterson hit so big with, yeah. with young men. And, but, but whenever there, I mean, not whenever, but often whenever there is someone who, who seems to communicate with young men and inspire them in some way, uh, people get nervous about this for some reason, like, like almost like people are, they, they, they don't trust it. You know, there's like something it's about extreme. Something's extreme it. about it that every, all the men are flocking yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah, like by by default, if a lot of young men find your message captivating, then somehow this is a this is a threat, and I mean, arguably, it's a bigger threat for young men to to not have any uh, uh, discipline or guidance mm-hmm. or or mentorship in their lives, and I mean, we'll see. Like when when you have large populations of young men who are restless and don't feel like they are contributing and and not they don't have any purpose in society, they don't have a stake in it or an investment. Um, that that too can be can be quite. Uh, quite a uh, you know uh, ominous when it comes to these things like polarization and uh, looking at reality as maybe subjective do you feel like the internet intensifies and like further disperses these feelings or do you feel like it's not much different than what it was even before the internet yeah it's it's interesting I mean it's 
I've seen like mixed research on this that mm-hmm. some people say that you know like like much of the the political extremism is actually happening offline and mm-hmm. like online communities somehow it actually has this um kind of buffering effect uh I guess just because like whatever content gets curated it actually tends not to be that extreme I mean you know like uh, there was a recent paper out about like you know there's this belief about YouTube rabbit holes where like oh you know one minute you're watching like Ben Shapiro and then the next you're like in this super right-wing like you know uh, yeah. toxic algorithm but the research seems to be going against that and and yeah like a lot of the people who aren't super online who are like in their own communities who you know whatever like they're, they're, they're just not exposed to that stuff like uh, there's yeah suggest suggestive evidence that they're the ones who are actually more extreme in their views I, I'm not actually sure what to make of any of this I mean I think that yeah, I think that the, the internet can contribute to toxic polarization. And, but I, but I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's happening, uh, uh, like around the country. I think most of the internet's polar, polarizing effects are among uh, elites or, or just highly educated people hmm. because they're the ones who are the most online. I mean, most like working class or blue collar people can't spend hours a day on Twitter yeah. or, uh, you know, consuming all this content. I mean, whatever, I guess if you're, you know, in some case you can listen to podcasts or something, but by and large, the people who are like very online are the highly educated types. And that's where I think like this sort of online internet polarization stuff mm-hmm. is happening, uh, where everyone's just sort of following the people that they like. There's a great uh, paper from Dan Williams. Uh, he's a philosophy uh, uh, philosopher here at, here at the University of Cambridge. He wrote this paper called The Marketplace of Rationalizations, where he basically says that, and I found this pretty persuasive, where he says that now there's, um, like people want to believe certain things. And now there's a market opening up where people can produce content to feed people the rationalizations they need to carry on believing the thing that they want to believe. Yep. You know, there's a limit to the the weirdness of arguments that you can believe in. I mean, you know, like most people, they have to have like some level of plausibility for them to believe in something. And for someone online to sort of feed it to them in a way that 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 is uh, plausible, that sounds reasonable, that they can defend to other people. Um, I think there's a lot of that going on too, where highly educated people are listening to arguments and ideas and beliefs that that are flattering to to their own views, um, often from like other educated and interesting people who know how to uh, formulate persuasive arguments. And so, so that's sort of my view: is that generally speaking, outside of you know maybe that top top uh, quintile of of income and education, the internet's probably not doing that much. But I think for for the very online educated class, it's 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 probably doing something. Do you think polarization is built into human nature? I mean, tribalism is probably built into human nature. Polarization is, I mean, I, I don't know, probably not because mm-hmm. so so. I mean, I think of human nature as, you know, what 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 were people like before the agricultural revolution? What were humans like in the Pleistocene twenty thousand plus years ago? Uh, hunter-gatherer bands, uh, subsistence living, that kind of thing. And I don't know if like polarization probably didn't exist, at least the way that we're thinking of it, but I, but, but tribalism certainly did. I mean, there was sort of inter-coalitionary warfare where, you know, these bands would go to war against one another for resources, for, uh, for wives, for, uh, yeah, all, like, yeah, all kinds of reasons. And so that is like a key aspect of, of human nature is like the sort of dividing people into us versus them yeah and you really trust us but they over there are potentially a, a threat and have to be eradicated there's a great quote i think 
oh, I can't remember. It might have been Franz Boas, some some anthropologist from the 20th century who wrote something along the lines of like for the vast majority of of human history, um, like the idea of human ended at the border of the tribe. Um, and so basically you have your sort of circle of people that you trust. And then like any sort of homo sapien you encountered outside of that was actually like, they, they use different words. Like they mm. wouldn't call them human. The word that they had for human were for the people that, that, that were in their tribe. And <laughs> it was okay to like, you know, what, uh, uh, eat, uh, members of the out group and to treat them any way you want and so on. And so it's, it's, a uh, one of the triumphs I think of sort of what enlight the enlightenment and liberal democracies and so on is like this, this sort of expansion of like understanding that, that, you know, human beings are the same everywhere and that everyone has rights and so on. And that just because someone speaks a different language or is a member of a different uh, group, you know, whatever ethnic or, or political or what have you, that they're still like a human being. But, yeah. you know, I think uh, it may, maybe the sort of online polarization stuff is getting people to, to, to forget about that. Yeah. Something really good. I've heard you speak, uh, speak to before on interviews was you know the concept that free speech cuts against the the grain of human nature and I think when people write stuff off as human nature they're like oh just let it be that's just how it is when in reality it's like human nature is it's of course not always what's good for the long term for us and there are ways to go against it and these things that go against it are can can be net positives just because they're not in our nature um so I thought that was very interesting because you spoke to like the historical n norm of saying what you wanted could get you killed even before there were necessarily laws and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. Free speech is not, uh, you know, it's not um, something that comes natural mm -hmm. to people. There have always been these sort of linguistic taboos uh, across uh, like throughout and across cultures and history and so forth. And so it's a new idea, free speech. And so, you know, like it's something that I, that, that's kind of, I mean, it's still an experiment in many ways, like whether it'll even work, it's something that I, you know, believe in, but, you know, trying to take this sort of realistic stance that, okay, is this something that, that, that can work? Does it um, sort of fit with our psychological or cognitive architecture and so forth? And I think it can, I mean, if it, if it sort of evolves naturally in the way that it did with Western society through the enlightenment and so forth, like we sort of arrived at freedom of speech and prize it in that way. Um, but, you know, like I, I know people who grew up in very different cultures and they do not believe in freedom of speech. And I'm, you know, they've told me like, oh, freedom of speech existed in my country. Like, like there would be bloodshed, like just no question the sort of whether it's like a very, uh, I don't know, just 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 because of the, the norms were arose organically in those societies in order to prevent violence. And so if you introduced it, it would cause it. Whereas in, in our case, I'm not entirely sure, like, would it be? Like, I, I think that we arrived in an organic and natural way towards freedom of speech. And so if we suppressed it, it would, it would actually erupt in, in, in conflict. So human nature in itself is not this sort of inflexible, uh, you know, set in stone kind of thing. Like you can use certain aspects of nature to suppress other aspects of nature too. Like social pressure is part of human nature, like, like falling prey to uh, your peers and their opinions of you and so forth. And so if something be like, if, if a sort of something that's sort of natural becomes like low status, then people won't do it. Um, even though it's, you know, part of, part of our nature. Right. And so, so I think things can be sort of uh, like certain aspects of, of our psychology can be sort of shaped in, in more productive directions.
among not only the political discourse, but just general discourse, we've seen um, an uptick in just like strength in independent media. In terms of younger generations, most of them all flock to uh, in individual online creators, individual personalities. Um, but traditionally, you know, you're going to the, the legacy media that are more collectives of people and collectives of information. Something I found super interesting in discourse or kind of, yeah, the, these political talking heads and how if they have, if you have these daily shows and you're reacting to online discourse and you're reacting to content and you're specifically under an ideology, you, you have to play into that ideology. So an example I saw that was like very interesting to me the other week was, um, so sometimes I, I'll watch different Daily Wire shows and one was Ben Shapiro and it was a video of, um, it was like a Disney exec, right? And there's a lot of conversation right now around the Disney conversation and how they they are like changing their um, approach towards youth media. But the Disney exec was talking about how instead of calling kids like boys and girls, they're going to call all kids dreamers, which, you know, it's kind of playing into a, cult, uh, a woke narrative a little bit, but it's also like at the end of the day, dreamers is just like a cute term. You can't really like refute that too much. So Ben's initial reaction as like someone who reacts to content on a daily basis on his daily show was, you know, extreme. It was extravagant. It was like, you know, I need to make this entertaining. So let me have this extreme reaction to this. And then like he's a minute or two in and he's like, actually, this is kind of dumb. Let's move on. But it was just so fascinating for me to see that initial reaction of like, I, I have to react this way because this is like what I do. This is how I uh, sustain myself. This is how I get views, all this stuff. So it's interesting to see like, um, you know, independent media often talks to uh, we are away from the establishment. Therefore, all of the corruption is gone, everything like that. But at the end of the day, you still have an algorithm to attend to. Your, the algorithms are your boss in order for you to like, make this money. And you have to play into the extreme still. Uh, yeah, like, I, I mean, I've... I remember, so when I, I launched this Substack, and I was looking at others, you know, like, because you have to, like, create this sort of, like, welcome page, and, you know, thanks for signing up, and that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. I was looking at some others. There's uh, there's one, I mean, th there's one by, by uh, Matt Taibbi, I think it was his, I mm -hmm. hope I'm getting that right, where his welcome, so so after you subscribe, he sends you the welcome email, and I think the last line, or second to last line, it was something like, um, I, I work for you now. Yes. Basically, like, you signed up, you're paying money to read my my thoughts and responses to whatever the trends are. And so therefore I'm, I'm working for you. And I, I found that interesting because on the one hand it's true, but on the other, like it's, it's a very sort of transparent acknowledgement of like, you know, uh, of a sort of like a performance, you know, like you're a, you're a busker, right? Like you're sort of, people are paying you and you're doing something like performing in a way. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, um, I guess there's no escaping that <laughs> yeah. whether you work for legacy media or you do your own thing or work for independent media, like you, if you work in the world of ideas and that's how you uh, sort of make your way, make your money, make whatever, like that's that you just have to play that game because there's no escaping that. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, there's an honesty to that, I guess. Like if you say that, like, yeah, like you're, we are responding to what you want. I guess like we're the sort of, you know, there's this term that's thrown around a lot on Twitter and stuff like grifter, you know, this grifter idea, like what, where's the line between, you know, just sort of doing your job or grifting, because like, you could also say, I mean, if, if the idea of grifter is just like, you're, you're validating your audience's opinions, then like literally everyone who works in the world of ideas who has an audience is a grifter. But I think grifter is, 
I think there's a maybe more subtle definition, which is you uh, are saying things you don't necessarily believe, but you know your audience does in order to gain followers or or subscribers or money or whatever, that if you're willing to sort of, like I said, this is a sort of selling out. This is a grifter is like the updated term, I guess, of just selling out of like, you're doing things that you don't agree with or believe in, in order to, you know, raise, elevate yourself in some way. Yeah. And so, yeah, there, but, but, but at the end, yeah, there's, there's sort of no escaping of having an audience and telling them what they want to hear. And, 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 and I think like the best people in independent media, at least, uh, are willing at times to upset their own audience. And those sure. are the people that I tend to like that, I, that I'm actually willing to sort of like sign up for and, and to read or listen to or whatever is like, yeah, I, I know this was a risk for this person to write this or to say this on their podcast or have this guest on who most of their audience will hate. Uh, that's something that I, that, that I respect. A tweet that I found really interesting of yours a few weeks ago and I would love for you to lab- elaborate on is you quote tweeted someone who said, what's a view you have that most people disagree with? And yours was boomers aren't that bad. And when millennials and Gen Z ascend to power, things will get worse. Well, okay. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, it's, it's something that I stand by. Yeah. Uh, I a hundred percent believe this. I, I just, um, by worse, I don't know how much worse and in, and in what form it'll take. But all of the trends I'm seeing just don't really bode well for like a stable, cohesive society. I mean, trust is at an all-time low. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. So uh, in, in 1959, 56% of 18 to 24-year-olds said that other people are generally trustworthy. So more than half, like a majority of the people, majority of young adults said, yeah, most people are generally trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, the number is 30%. So it's basically been cut in half over the last, what, 60-ish years. Uh, trust among young adults has has plummeted. Yes. Um, the, you know, sort, sort of views about, like, you know, whether you trust your neighbors, whether you, like, you know, are, uh, you know, there, there, there's another uh, survey from Pew, which is something like, uh, you know, do you believe that people, uh, you know, care about others or are they just sort of looking out for their own interests? And, you know, th- those rates are declining among young people as well over time interactions with with neighbors like how often do you greet or interact with your neighbor i mean in in the late 90s it was most young people said yes to this question and today it's like a, um, a pronounced minority you know, just like a small number of people so so generally like you know all of these things cooperation trust um willingness to engage and then, and then of course like the marriage rates right like marriage rates are plummeting among young people i think among young men at least I can't remember the the age cutoffs, but like under thirty four or something. Andrew Yang might have might have written about this in in one of his one of his essays about mm-hmm. how now more young men live with their parents than live with a partner. Yep. Um, you know, and so like, is that is that like the sort of recipe for you know having like good leaders and good people in society? Uh, you know, people who are still sort of living off of their parents rather than than trying to like become reliable people who others can 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 rely on, right? Like, there's a, there's a huge difference between relying on others versus being relied upon. Yep. And more and more young people, it seems, are are more likely to be relying on others than becoming the kind of people who can be relied upon. And and, and then of course, like I've brought this up with people, and they oftentimes they just react with anger. Mm-hmm. How dare you? And then they point to all of these sort of economic trends or what have you, and and like fine, but like. It's not as if, you know, the trends today are worse than, you know, say like like the Great Depression or or even the Great Recession of two thousand eight. Like we've had like worse economic 
uh, downturns in society, you know, stagflation in the 70s and so on. Um, but even during those periods, right, like the sort of general attitude and the malaise around young people just just was not nearly as as uh, what exaggerated or pronounces it is now. So that was the reason why I said that. The other thing is like, I think like the polarization is going to get worse and, and it's going to look, it's going to take on like strange forms, I think, because the boomers, even though like maybe they were, I don't know, to some degree they were politically polarized and have different ideas about society and politics and government. Yeah. The, regardless of party, they still had ideas in mind about like a life script of like getting married, having kids and so forth, right? Like every president we've had has sort of followed that, that, that path. Um, I think now because of the sort of increased levels of social permissiveness, the lifting of the cultural guardrails and so on, and people are partitioning into their respective political camps, we're going to have situations in the future where like member, like, you know, millennials or, or Gen Z, where like, you're going to have one presidential candidate who is sort of married and has kids like mm -hmm. the sort of conventional, typical family formation. And then you're going to have like candidates on the other side who like live in a polycule and have all kinds of like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like interesting experiences with different partners and so on, because, because that's sort of becoming acceptable in society as a whole. And I think like having that level of polarization where like now you're two candidates are living like, uh, like they're unrecognizable from one another in terms of how they live their lives and their family formations and so forth. I just don't know if that's like a recipe for a, for a stable society. Um, having some level of, of sort of cohesion and similarity in life scripts and so on, I think like that is, is, is beneficial. Maybe, maybe individually it's um, what confining, mm -hmm. but in terms of society, it's actually, it's actually often a good thing. So, so that was why I wrote that. I think a lot of the trends are, are looking a little bit grim. Yeah. I think there's also not necessarily a North star today in terms of like a few decades ago, the American dream, you know, was white picket fence. You have a family, all, all that. Now it's so variant, especially since even some younger people think that like having kids could be unethical when it comes to climate change stuff. Like there's those conversations too, like what you're saying exactly. And like how you live your life to down to those things, like a everything's like, oh, if you, it, the extreme of, oh, if you oppose what I think is moral, then you are bad inherently. Well, I don't think that like, I mean, in terms of like worse, like, I, I don't want to say that like they're worse people. I think like there's also avenues for people to express sides of themselves that, that didn't exist in the past. So for like, sure. Tw 20 years ago, you couldn't see uh, members of Congress, you know, like, like, like behaving like 13 year olds, you know, on social media, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, maybe they would have, like if Twitter had existed in 2002, like, you know, right after 9-11, if you could see like the reactions of Congress to that event, like, I think, you know, we, we would be horrified, you know, especially if you can get likes and retweets and clicks and, and validation for sharing the most extreme. But now it's like, it's just weird now for like, if you're a 15 year old kid and you get on social media and you see like the leaders of your country saying things that like you said when you were in eighth grade, uh, I think like that also has like toxic detrimental effects on society too, where like the people you're supposed to look up to and aspire to be or respect in some way, you see that like they, like you're seeing like the nastiest sides of their personality. And often like the people in those positions don't think about this. And so, so it's not to say like they're inherently worse, but now mm -hmm. we have opportunities to express those ugly sides of ourselves that, that previous generations didn't have. Well, Yang has talked about this before too, of like, you know, Gen X is kind of the forgotten generation in conversations. We always skip over them often where it's like boomers. And then like, we always go to millennials and Gen Z. And you talked about how uh, he, he was talking to a friend and 
his friend kind of pinpointed that Gen X is going to be essential in the role of, of, of course, boomers are kind of still at the forefront of government conversations right now. But Gen X is going to play a big role in terms of, yeah, social, the social media conversations and everything going on there because they were a generation that completely grew up without social media. Like millennial generation still grew up pretty in depth with the internet, even though social media wasn't too big until like 2010, 2012 era. There's a great book. Uh, it just came out, The 90s by Chuck Klosterman, who's, uh, I think it's Klosterman actually. He's a, um, a, a Gen Xer. He's mm-hmm. born like the like mid-late 70s or something. But he, in this book, he has this line, which is really good, which is, um, you know, like there's a lot of, like Gen X has a lot of faults. You know, they were sort of like disengaged, apathetic, all this stuff. But they do have sort of one redeeming quality, which is that they're the least annoying yes. of the currently existing <laughs> generations. Uh, and he talks about how you know they 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 sort of come you know, whatever like they complained less than the generations that came both before and after them. And uh, and it is interesting. Like part of the reason why I think they're overlooked is because like they don't complain, they don't make noise. Like part of how you get attention and how you um, sort of. Uh, 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 Get the get the policies you want enacted and so forth is to agitate and to draw attention to yourselves and to make life miserable for other people and Gen X just didn't do that like they were uninterested in and then they still seem to be sort of uninterested in that and so it's it's been interesting to see like maybe maybe as the the boomers uh, sort of recede from from leadership roles and Gen X will replace some of them that maybe they'll they'll help steer steer the ship in a different direction. That would be nice. Yes. Like, you know, I'm a fan of Gen X. No pressure, guys. (laughs) But for real. I saw you um, shared a study talking about, like, we are not built to be happy. Evolution doesn't want us to be in constant bliss. Some degree of unsettledness, anxiety, and ambition might be baked into the human condition. And again, to what we talked about earlier, human nature isn't always something that we have to stick by, blah, blah, blah. But I find stuff like this, even though it's saying, oh, like, uh, as humans, we are not meant to be happy. And a lot of people might look at that as a negative. I find stuff like this pretty liberating in the same way I find like mortality liberating because I think it like pushes you to, again, it's that pressure to make the most of your days and all, all that. So just like, yeah, getting into the liberation of this and the ability for people to let go of this feeling of when they are not happy because I think a lot of young people today and a lot of young men, like we were speaking of earlier, just put when they are unhappy that something is wrong with them and kind of just clarifying what you believe within human nature of how you should kind of approach unhappiness. It's a good question. I mean, it's uh, that, that, that idea repeatedly comes up in a lot of the evolutionary psychology research on happiness is that happiness is not like it's, it, 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 it's not an end in itself uh, evolutionarily speaking, it was, it's a motivator. It's mm-hmm. something to sort of drive you towards something. So like, if you think about the times you feel happy, the feeling of happiness is like an evolutionary payoff to do something that in the ancestral environment, uh, increased your ability to survive or attract allies or romantic partners or obtain resources or status and so on. Um, and so, and so it, it, it wasn't an end in itself. It was just a means to, to an end. It was, a, it was a sort of a carrot on the end of a stick. And so to me, that was liberating too, to, to understand that because, 
you know, we always think at least like people, especially people who are who are young, who are ambitious, who are striving for something. It's, you know, you always think it's like that next thing. Like if I could just do this one thing, then I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Just this sort of next milestone, then I'll be set. And then you achieve it and you're happy for like, you know, a week. And then and then you're on to the next thing. And uh, I I can't remember where I read this, but but basically it's um, I wrote this somewhere that that it's achievements are like a, a warm bath where at, at, at first you get in there and it feels great. And then pretty soon it feels like nothing at all. Um, and so, so to, to, to keep that in mind that uh, the struggle is sort of built in to the human condition, that it'll always be there with us. And that just because you feel some unhappiness, I mean, yeah, I think like part of just getting older too, is just realizing that whatever you're feeling unhappy or, or down or in some way, like it passes, like a lot of this stuff is just sort of momentary experiences on your emotional ticker and it'll sort of pass by and you'll feel good again, or you'll feel back to your sort of baseline again. Um, A lot of unhappiness seems to have been kind of like medicalized or like people immediately jump to like these kind of like, psychiatric diagnoses or something oh, yes. and i mean this is not to downplay it or say that like this doesn't exist or people don't experience depression and anxiety and so forth like i, I get all of that but you know there's uh there's interesting research showing that um you know one big predictor of happiness is is sort of living a, an ethical life and doing like the right thing and there's you know, there's a psychiatrist theodore dalrymple who's writing i really like where he says that like we sort of separated um behavior from feeling where like oh if you feel bad it's a sort of uh it's a brain chemistry problem it's uh it's a medical problem and it it's it has nothing to do with how you're behaving in your day-to-day life but often you know what makes you feel good uh are doing things that that are sort of have positive effects for yourself for your loved ones for your social circle for your community and yeah, it's surprising. I think people are often, yeah, they don't understand that. Like if you feel down, doing something nice for someone else is often a, a, a shrewd way to feel better yourself. Um, but often, especially like I think, yeah, younger people and and you know, people in, in our culture in general are just sort of preoccupied and self-centered and don't realize that, you know, sort of being so caught up in your own head and, and in your own thoughts, like that is, that is often a recipe for unhappiness and, 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 and a solution oftentimes is to just step outside of yourself and wonder like, what can I do for other people? And that can be a cure. Often the happiest people you'll ever meet almost never think about themselves. I agree. Wow. Word. What a great place to end. Thank you so much, Rob, for being here. And where can people find you as well as more of your work online so they can definitely access that in the future? Well, my Substack, Rob K. Henderson. So Rob, the letter K. Henderson.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson. Yeah, I just became a subscriber on Substack. So yeah, I definitely recommend that to everyone. Thank you for being here, Rob. Thanks, Jules.